right, I'm back. This is Joseph Loudon with Sociable Socialism. And uh, yeah, I have been, I've been in something of a depression um, recently. Uh, I think that it's something that our whole society is going through right now with the coronavirus spreading. And also, I mean, honestly, uh, there's been some frustrations on my part. Just, I mean, there's so much to cover, obviously, but it kind of feels like all of it all of it is meaningless and already covered all at the same time. So I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a weird time, you know, in terms of coronavirus, I'm not trying to oversaturate the airwaves with more coverage about what most people know to be a, a crap situation. Uh, but without further ado, uh, let's get started. I'm going to see if I can cover uh, a couple different uh, points related to the pandemic and related to how a society that used socialism or socialist policies would be able to adequately address these issues. Stay tuned. So it's good to be back, and uh, I will resume weekly recordings on Tuesdays going forward. Obviously, I have plenty of free time uh, because I have been trapped at home, as many of you have been, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I, I I have serious concerns, I suppose, about how we are going to deal with this in the long term, as it seems like the general policy at the moment is treading water, uh, and that's it. You know, I mean, we talk about being out of work until after June, after July. I mean, my company that I work for has already reduced our weeks down to 24 hour weeks. So five hours a day, about roughly 25 hours a week. But compared with the 70, 80 hour weeks I used to have, my paycheck will suffer. Uh, There's some real concern on my part about whether or not I'd be better off just going with unemployment. Uh, But even that seems short-sighted to me. Uh, at least insofar as how our government is addressing it. Obviously, more on that later. I'm just uh, going over what my experience has been. I don't know about yours, but uh, my experience of the virus thus far has been rather tame uh, because I'm in Northern Virginia. And for the most part, up until very recently, most things were still in operation. Dining restaurants, you couldn't dine in, but carryout was still working until... Uh, earlier this week, where that ended at midnight. Uh, And at this time, I personally uh, am optimistic, believe it or not, about how this is going to turn out. But I very easily could be wrong. I mean, I was very optimistic, I now realize, in believing that Bernie Sanders was going to win this nomination hands down because I didn't see any way for the establishment to stop him short of killing him. Uh, And I said as much because it just didn't, the numbers weren't there. As long as they remained divided, the establishment, I couldn't see how they could mount an effort against him. And my assumption rested on the fact that it was impossible for them to unite. And until Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar were forced to drop out, uh, that had been proven true. But obviously they were forced to drop out. Uh, The rumor has it that Barack Obama was behind that. And uh, he basically pulled the plug on their funding. And uh, consequently, they had no money to run their campaigns and were forced to drop out and endorse Joe Biden. And it's a lot easier for the establishment to fudge the numbers for one candidate than it is to fudge the numbers for six or seven. Now, I was even more optimistic even after that had happened because, you know, the reality is we knocked out five opponents and left up one frail old man. But the coronavirus epidemic... It seems they are going to use it as a pretext to end debates. Joe Biden has said he feels like we've done enough debates. We just need to wrap this thing up, even though the major- there's still a tremendous amount of delegates. Uh, I want to say it's either 1,200 or 1,900. I'll pull up that number in a bit. Uh, but the amount of delegates left on the table is still astronomical. And we have Joe Biden basically saying, yeah, let's just wrap this thing up. I'm the presumptive nominee as if this isn't 
a campaign still. And his supporters in the establishment are coming out and basically saying, well, look at Bernie Sanders surrogates, even though these aren't surrogates, they're journalists <laughs> attacking Joe Biden. This is looking weird, folks. He's the presumptive nominee. This is being divisive. It's a campaign still. They really just want to end it. They want this to be over. They want Bernie Sanders to give up, to bend the knee and to acknowledge Joe Biden as the winner. They don't want to have to campaign anymore. Now, we have every right to take this to the convention. I was never one of the people that said we shouldn't have a contested convention. It's the whole reason why you have a convention. But nonetheless, it's obviously not ideal. It's not where we wanted to be. And it is not it it's not a positive situation to be in. Had they not united around Biden and things remained divided, we definitely had the numbers to swing it to Bernie, no matter how you sliced it. Uh, and I still feel like they tried desperately to slice it, for example, to Pete Buttigieg in Iowa, and it looked ra- completely suspicious, and they kept trying to twist it to benefit Pete Buttigieg over and over again through, I don't want to say duplicitive, but let's go with opaque, through an opaque proce- procedure that constantly was riddled with errors that we easily caught and called them on, and they kept getting mad at us, and they kept saying, why are you guys being such sticklers about this. Why can't you let Iowa die? Why can't we move on? Why can't we do that? Like, it, it's very clear that the power centers in the, in the country are fighting with everything they have to prevent Bernie from being elected. And this is what I meant when I said Noam Chomsky may have had the right of it. It, it had nothing to do with our platform. Our platform was correct. We were right on the issues. The majority of Americans support us. We represent the base of the party. And we had the mechanism to succeed. But the fact of the matter is that it is virtually impossible to overcome these systems of power that we are up against through their systems. Like, like it's their game board. They make the rules. They check the numbers and score the tally. And we wanted to beat them at their own game effectively. And that was an ambitious and, at the time, I said the correct way of doing things. But when you're backed up against a wall, clearly even this disorganized, self-interested group of people can turn on one another uh, or stop turning on one another and focus all fire on one target. And so far, they have managed to stymie our movement or at least present a roadblock Uh, that has put us in a situation where we're down. And if things go to a contested convention, Biden still has the most delegates. However, Biden continues to cancel uh, any kind of public address. He hasn't been seen in public. He continues to just do uh, green screened. uh, I don't really know what you'd want to call them. It's video. He does video calls. Uh, either out to journalists or to The View or to the public, but that's the extent of it. He just does live streams behind, with a green screen behind him meant to make it look like he's in his home. And that's the extent of Biden's interaction with the public. Uh, with him wanting to cancel debates, it's even more clear to me that he is very aware of the fact that if if he is put on the spotlight, or at least his aides are aware of this fact, If he's put on the spotlight, it will look bad. He continues to, every time he speaks, uh, make an ass of himself or at least show that he's had serious mental decline. I don't know what the appropriate response, response to this is supposed to be. There's the part of me that says, no, I will not be cowed to vote for this man by a party that's betrayed my trust and continues to abuse the progressive left by shooting us every time we try to pull the party in the direction that space clearly wants it to go. They shoot us down and claim that we're being divisive. They say we're loud Bernie bros. And again, you know, if you call them loud peasants, it makes just as much sense. Uh, They are determined to defeat us. So on the one hand, I want to say, fuck them and fuck Joe Biden. I'm not going to vote for him. And on the other hand, I have the same conundrum I had with Hillary Clinton, which is where if one person's life is saved as a result of Joe Biden's nomination over Trump's, if it ends the concentration and internment of immigrants, 
both legal and illegal uh, or undocumented, if it ends the absurdity of our coronavirus, well, I, I have no guarantee it'll do either of those things. You know, I mean, I, I, I can't be sure it would. But if there was some way we could make it sure that it would, or at least if it's more likely under Biden, like it, 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 it is just not a black and white issue. You know, it, it, and it isn't to say that I want to make excuses for the Democratic Party. It is to say, though, that I, I wonder if a Biden presidency isn't easier to take down uh, with a primary from the left than a Trump presidency is. I'm also not entirely convinced that Trump isn't a petty despot that would end elections given the chance. And I think Biden would pretty much have to rely on them because I don't think he would have the same kind of inspiration power. Like Trump has a real base, for instance. You know Trump has a base that supports him rapidly and that would cheerlead for him should he suspend elections. I don't think Biden would have anyone cheerleading for him on the right, left, or even the center should he choose to suspend elections. So with Biden, at least, I'm sure there will be a continuation of the democracy, however shallow it is. So I'm torn is the honest answer. I, I don't know that if the choice was put before me, I could honestly say I'd write in Bernie Sanders. That's where my heart would be. And obviously, I, I've worked for this campaign. I've made calls. I've done canvassing. I've donated an absurd amount of money, money that I don't really have. And I don't want to throw that all away by voting for a man that's in contradiction with all of my stated values. Someone who I don't even believe, even if he wasn't in contradiction to all my stated values, someone I don't believe is, is mentally fit for the office. I got into an argument once with a, a Twitter profile and they only had like 12 followers, but that's how I know that they were a, a shill or a cover or a sock puppet for, puppet for someone else who basically said, uh, don't worry, his vice president will be the one to pull the strings from behind the scenes. Uh, unity. Remember unity. That Those were the two things that it said to me. Uh, and that's disgusting to me, but that is also... That is probably their game plan behind the scenes. They're just going to put in uh, Biden as a showpiece that they hide and they have the VP pretty much govern everything, even though the VP, whoever they were, would not have won a national election. It's basically the establishment through Biden's nomination, choosing the nominee in one of the least democratic possible ways. Uh, I think it'll probably be Stacey Abrams. I think that's more or less certain. Uh, though I've heard Amy Klobuchar thrown around as the uh, other possibility. But the honest truth is what I would vote on with in regards to Biden doesn't matter. As I think I've also said, uh, it is inconsequential how I vote. What matters is how a mass amount of people vote. And even if you can persuade me on the argument that I just gave, uh, that Biden is worth voting for, you would not persuade a vast majority, I would say, of the Bernie Sanders coalition, many of whom are determined to only vote for him. He has the best policies, the most experience, a clear vision. He's something the country desperately needs right now. He's shown clear leadership during the coronavirus pandemic. And there are a lot of people that just will not settle for someone like Joe Biden. And I can't say that they're wrong. Obviously, I'm in conflict about it. And that's the real problem. And that's why I don't buy into the vote shaming mentality. I didn't buy into it with Hillary Clinton, and I don't buy into it now. Now, I do think vote shaming is necessary. I've advocated even for it in the past because, again, I think rightly so in my in my mind that voting for Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump was a fair bet. But I also understood that the fault was with Hillary. And I've said that from the beginning. She lost to Donald Trump as we were afraid she would. So even if I can make the same argument again, that it is right to vote for Joe Biden in spite of his flaws, just because Trump would kill more people or would be a worse shepherd of the economy or what have you, uh, a threat to democracy, what have you, it, it doesn't matter. The fault will lie with the candidate and with the establishment ultimately when he fails to beat Donald Trump, you know, how an individual votes, I'm willing to debate that, but it ultimately is just an intellectual debate. My whole argument about vote shaming 
was that it's perfectly right to vote shame someone just in the same way that if you buy nothing but Pringles chips and eat them and you become like obese and malnourished, uh, I'm perfectly allowed to shame you because that's fucking stupid. And shame is a way that we uh, curb out bad behavior in society, things that are unhealthy or nonsensical. You know, I mean, you don't want to burn your hand on a pan. Uh, so when your child starts to reach for the pan, you slap it and you tell them not to do it again. But ultimately, that's an individual choice. That's an individual basis. What we're talking about when we're running for president is it's choices that will affect 330 million people and, in fact, the world. Uh, and the overwhelming fault and responsibility lies with the candidate to get elected. If the candidates are actually serious about taking on fascism, taking on Donald Trump, they need to address that reality head on. And Joe Biden is not the candidate to do that. So it will not shock me. Even if I can be persuaded, and Joe Biden is an infinitely worse candidate than Hillary Clinton in. And she was a bad candidate, by far, a warmonger in every sense of the word. Wasn't willing to give us Medicare for all. But by comparison with Joe Biden, I mean, my God, he has all the same like flaws as Hillary Clinton, but he's an old white man who has dementia. I mean, it's just not comparable. This is this is absurd. It's absurd that we have someone who marched in the civil rights era up against someone who lied about marching in the civil rights era, someone who lied about getting arrested in apartheid South Africa and got caught on that recently. And the media just didn't do anything about it. Like these are this is absurd. And so the whole problem is that not just I think Bernie Sanders is the right choice, but when people turn and say, but you have stuff to vote for the nominee. My point is that it doesn't matter if you can convince me to do it. The point is whether or not you can convince the majority of people to do it. And I don't think you will. I think that Joe Biden will be hiding from debates. I think when he debates, it'll be pathetic and sad. And I think he'll get far less of the vote in comparison even to Hillary. I think he will turn out less people than Hillary Clinton did, honestly. And the degree of corruption that has gone into this primary versus the Hillary Clinton 2016 primary, it's 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 so much worse. I mean, it was bad in 2016, but Bernie had also felt like got a late start. Like by the time that he really realized he could win this, like California obviously had already gone to Hillary Clinton. So the fact that Bernie won California and won it handedly shows you how much more of a fight this time was and how much more corrupt they've had to have been. From Iowa to Massachusetts to Arizona, it has been gross. It has been a very, to Texas, it has been duplicitive to say the least. And I, I don't really want to do that because uh, I know that I would get smeared as conspiratorial, but that that's the reality of it. There's very clear election fraud going on here. I don't know why Bernie isn't speaking up about it. I hypothesize that he was waiting for the majority of the contest to be over, but I don't think that's the right call anymore. At the time, I was like, okay, but you have to be watching for it going forward. That was sort of the expectation. But clearly, he just is, I, I don't know. It feels to me like he is rudderless at the moment. I, I don't know if he knows the appropriate way to respond to this. And it seems like his advisors have been debating it amongst themselves even. Uh, there was a point where they were debating three separate options between uh, ending the campaign you know, and supporting Joe Biden or continuing the campaign to the very end. And most people were like, pick option two, please. And there was a third option, but you know, again, it doesn't matter. Uh, everyone was like, option two, Bernie. Option two. Keep running. Run it right to the end. Bring it up to the convention. This is a campaign. And this man is a joke. We cannot support him. Once he gets the nomination, whether or not people vote for him or not is dependent on him. He has to make the arguments. And he seems completely disinterested in making those arguments. That is the key problem. And even today, we have a, a trending hashtag on Twitter of I believe Tara, uh, who is accusing Joe Biden uh, of rape. And of course, every time she's come up with her story, uh, she's been shot down on the premise that it would be divisive or it would uh, interfere with the primary. So effectively, we have a Me Too style situation 
where the victim is being silenced because it would be politically inconvenient for the powerful, truly inconvenient for the powerful people in this country, were Joe Biden to be canceled due to rape. Now, as with all things, uh, this story is a bit chilling, uh, all things related to the Me Too movement. And it's chilling because of the power, at least in my, my opinion, the power difference between the two individuals that are always involved in these Me Too situations. Uh, how one person can control your life so completely just because of their station, their job, the amount of wealth between the two of them that it's terrifying to even consider speaking up. How you feel like just a, a, a piece of debris that blew in the way of some fast moving car and the car rips straight through you, but you don't have the power or the resources to push back on it. And, uh, Reed Alexandra, Alexandra Tara Reed, uh, has been trying to tell this story since it happened in 1993. And it's a story about sexual assault, uh, retaliation and silencing. Tara had already come forward about, Part of her story, after Lucy Flores accused Biden of touching her inappropriately, Reed was one of the seven other women to share their own stories about Biden. Reed told reporters about the way he would put his hands on her shoulders, run his fingers up and down her neck, and she considered talking about the rest of her story, but she didn't because her claims of sexual harassment got her docs and smeared as a Russian agent, and that was in April 2019. And then in January 2020, Reed tried to come forward again. This time to Time's Up now. Uh, and as Ryan Grimm reported uh, from The Intercept, uh, the organization said they couldn't help her because Biden was a candidate for federal office and supporting a case against him could jeopardize their nonprofit status. So again, this is an organization that was created specifically to help women in these Me Too situations. But because Joe Biden is the only person who could conceivably defeat Bernie Sanders, and that is the entire weight of the powerful behind it is that movement to defeat Bernie Sanders. Since he's the only one that can conceivably do it, he is off the table. No organization, no matter how widespread or no matter how popularly supported, is going to take up the sword to take on Joe Biden if they want to keep working in Washington, if they want to be tax exempt, you know, if they don't want to be uh, destroyed from the forces uh, that would be arrayed against it. It's also worth pointing out that the public relations firm that works on behalf of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund is SKD Knickerbocker, whose managing director, Anita Dunn, is the top advisor to Biden's presidential campaign. And so, as is expected with most allegations of sexual assault, there were no witnesses. Uh, but Tara's brother and her good friend, each of whom I've spoken with, this is Katie Halper talking, Recall being told that the assault by Tara at the time, this is a story that should have been looked into, and Tara reached out to countless people to try to get her story out, and nobody would, not even the organization that was made to support women like her. Uh, now I'm going to play a clip that Katie Halper made available to us. Uh, it goes a part of a larger interview uh, that she hasn't released yet, but it has a rather horrifying and chilling tale of what Joe Biden did to her. And I think it is worth sharing this. So I'm going to play the clip that Katie Halper has made available to us. And I hope that you will listen through all of it and absorb what it is that she is saying, because it is disgusting. And this is the kind of person that needs to be held accountable for their crimes and Again, it, 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 it's, it's just amazing that the hate against Senator Sanders is so severe that they would try to put up a monster like Joe Biden and that supposed allies of the Me Too movement, women in powerful positions, would ignore one of their fellows specifically because they recognize they need to use Joe Biden to defeat someone who might raise their taxes. I mean, class solidarity above all else, it seems is the only rule in this world. So anyway, without further ado. 
Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm about to play an excerpt from an interview that I did with Tara Reid. The full episode will be up shortly. As a warning, Tara discusses sexual assault during this interview. Tara was one of eight women to accuse Joe Biden of some form of inappropriate touching last spring after Nevada politician Lucy Flores alleged that the vice president inappropriately touched her during her run for Congress. Tara told journalists that in 1993, when she was a staff assistant to then-Senator Biden, he put his hands on her shoulders and rubbed his fingers up and down her neck. But Tara says there's more to her story, and she considered telling it last spring. But after coming forward and being smeared as a Russian agent and being doxxed, she did not. We now know from Ryan Grimm's 324 article on The Intercept, Tara did try to come forward once again in January of 2020. Tara turned to Time's Up, the nonprofit dedicated to helping women in the post-MeToo world tell their story. But Time's Up, Ryan Grimm reports, was concerned such a political story involving a potential presidential candidate could affect their nonprofit status. So here, Tara finally tells the rest of the story that she hasn't been able to tell in the past. Not surprisingly, there are no witnesses to Tara's story of alleged assault, but Tara's brother and Tara's close friend, both of whom I spoke to, recall Tara telling them about the incident at the time. Here is an excerpt. I'll be releasing the full interview shortly. And this opens with Tara describing a superior calling her into her office to ask her to do an errand. So she says that she called me in and said, I want you to take this to Joe. He wants it. He wants you to bring it. Hurry. And I said, okay. And it was a gym bag. She said, you know, take the gym bag. She called it athletic bag. And, you know, she said he was down towards the Capitol and he'll meet you. And so I went down and I was heading down towards there. And he was at first talking to someone. I could see him at a different distance and then they went away. And then um, we were in like the side. It it was like the side area. And um, he just said, hey, come here, Tara. And then I, I handed him the thing and he greeted me. He remembered my name. And then it we were alone and it was the strangest thing. There was no like exchange, really. He just had me up against the wall. And, um, I was wearing like a skirt and, you know, business skirt, but I wasn't wearing stockings. It was kind of a hot day that day. And I was wearing heels. And I remember my legs had been hurting from the marble, you know, of the Capitol, Mm -hmm. like walking. And I, so I remember that kind of stuff. I remember like I was wearing a blouse and he just had me up against the wall and the wall was cold. And I remember he, it happened all at once. The gym bag, I don't know where it went. I handed it to him. It was gone. And then his hands were on me and underneath my clothes. And, um, yeah. And then he went, oh, he went down my skirt, but then up inside it. And he, uh, penetrated me with his fingers, whatever. And, um, I, uh, he was kissing me at the same time and he was saying something to me. He said several things and I can't remember everything he said. I remember a couple of things. I remember him saying first before, like, as he was doing it, do you want to go somewhere else? And then him saying to me, when I pulled away, he, um, got finished doing what he was doing. And I kind of was pulled back and he said, he said, come on, man, I heard you liked me. Mm. And it's that phrase stayed with me because I kept thinking what I might've said. And I can't remember exactly if he said I thought or if I heard, but it's like he implied like that I had done this, like, I don't know. And for me, it was like every, everything shattered in that moment because I knew like we were alone. It was over. Right. He wasn't trying to do anything more, but it's, I looked up to him. He was like my father's age. He was this champion of, women's rights in my eyes. And I couldn't believe it was happening. It didn't see, it seems surreal. And I, I just, I knew, I, I just felt sick because he, when he pulled back, he looked annoyed and he said um, something else to me that I, I don't want to say. And then he said, he, I must've looked shocked and he grabbed me by the shoulders. I don't know how I looked, but I must've looked something because he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, you're okay. You're fine. You're okay. You're fine. And then he walked away and he went on with his day. And what I remember next is being in the Russell building, like where the big windows are and the stairs by myself and my body, I was shaking everywhere because, and it was cold all of a sudden. And I was, I don't know. I felt like I was shaking just everywhere. And I was trying to grasp what had just happened. And 
what I should do or what I should say. But I knew it was bad because he was so angry. Like when he left, like I could feel, you know how when you know someone's angry, they don't necessarily say anything. Like he smiles when he's angry and you can just feel it emanating from him. Like, Do you want to share that thing that you said you don't, like you said, like, I, I don't want to say what he said, that thing he said to you. Um, yeah, I can, I guess I could. I mean, you, you don't have to. It's okay. It's just, um, it's almost like giving a weapon to them. How so? Well, it's like, I don't want them to know how much it hurt. I don't, mm. you know, I, mean? I don't want him to know when they, I don't know. But that yeah, like that I, you remembered it. Yeah. Just, just the, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I can say it. Um, yeah, there was something he said that I didn't want to say, and I didn't want to say it because it's the thing that stays in my head mm. over and over. Like, like, and um, it's a thing that <clears throat> kind of stayed with me over the years. But he said, um, when he had me against the wall after he had done, after I pulled away, and he had said, "Hey, you know, come on, I've heard you liked me," and I. Um, knew he was angry right after he took his finger. He just like pointed at me and he said, you're nothing to me. And then he, he just looked at me and he goes, you're nothing, nothing. And then I must have reacted. And I think he only said it twice. I said, but I, but I just heard the word nothing. Mm -hmm. And, and I must have reacted because that's when he took me by the shoulders and he said, you know, you're okay. You're fine. You're okay. But then afterwards, like it kept replaying in my head. I'm like last April when all that stuff came out, <clears throat> I got really, really sad about it. And the thing that I remember most, almost more than the assault itself was just being told I was nothing. And he was right. That's how people treated me. Mm. That's how office treated me. And I have no platform. I am no one. And to him, I'm nothing. So, yeah. Um, so if people want to know why women don't come forward, that's a good example of why. Stand by for the full interview. And when we talk about believe the women, it's because too often when women come forward and they make these accusations. Everyone says you're doing it for money. You're doing it for power. You're a Russian agent because any time a woman has anything to say that is truly inconvenient to those with power, it must therefore be a lie. And when it's convenient for the powerful, whether because of vanity or just because the consequences to themselves are small enough that it is worth it to them just to look good. When it's convenient to the powerful, they're always on board with the Me Too movement. They're always like, yes, always believe the women. Don't you believe the women? Or when they think they can use it, such as when Elizabeth Warren claimed that Bernie Sanders said a woman couldn't win the presidency, which was an absurd lie. We all saw through it. Women allies of Bernie Sanders saw through it and said that it would be out of character for him in the extreme to have said something. And now, obviously, we can choose to believe that Elizabeth Warren believes he said it, and that's a sticky situation to be in. Uh, but one of them has a track record of embellishing stories and had a politically expedient reason to smear the other. The other has been a honorary woman uh, or was deemed one in the 90s and has had a perfect track record of fighting for women's rights and also in a book that he wrote prior to this conversation ever being had the alleged conversation and the alleged comment wrote a book where he says he encouraged Elizabeth Warren to run for president proving that it is uh, flat in its face just a foolish allegation you know I mean it, it didn't make sense and the details around it were sketchy to say the least. So obviously we believe the women and I, I say all of this, you know, realizing this isn't a part of the topic, but 
in certain situations, it's okay to have a degree of skepticism. Uh, this story is not, not at all one of those situations. For one thing, the power dynamic uh, between Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders is virtually equal as both of them are United States senators. And that's a very different position to be in than what Tara Reid just shared with you. Uh, the, the power dynamic between her and Joe Biden was, as he points out there at the end, you are nothing to me. Nothing. Chilling. Absolutely chilling that someone could be in such a position of privilege and power that they don't even see another human being that they just assaulted as a person worthy of respect or consideration. An absolute coldness. It, it, it's, it, it left me dumbfounded when I heard that, and I had not heard that before I decided to record tonight. Because, as I said, I've been kind of in a depression, and I knew that once I heard the interview, it would fill me with grief and frustration. And in fact, when I started this episode, I still had not heard it. And that frustration and depression, I believe, uh, in that first segment was very apparent. And now it's been replaced with just a seething anger that I have no place to put because I spent 10 minutes talking about the pros and cons of voting for this man. And the me from back then would probably point out that even as horrifying and disgusting as that interview makes Joe Biden out to be, if it saves one life, what is different? But the fact of the matter is this man is a monster and deserves to be held accountable for what he did to her and I'm sure other women because there's always others. Someone comfortable with that kind of behavior must have a track record. They always do because they think they can get away with it. I mean, eight women came forward mentioning inappropriate touching. So this is not an accident. This is a behavior, a pattern of abuse. And I have no idea what to do with this rage I now feel because it seems like forces have conspired to put Biden into this spot where he is not allowed to lose. He's just going to be carried to this nomination. And if he loses to Donald Trump, then that's fine because the people that carry him to the nomination won't be hurt. They will be relatively unaffected by either a Biden presidency or a Trump presidency. And truthfully, given the fact that major Republican donors, uh, super delegates for the uh, Democratic Party, oftentimes these two groups are one and the same. Because both parties are run and operated by a short list of very rich, very well-connected people. And that is why they always seem to be able to unite on policies that screw over the American people. And they just have debates. Even if they are substantial, but they just have debates about things like immigration, things like whether or not, you know, Romney care goes far or too far or not far enough. You know, it's, it's never a debate about, hey, shouldn't we cut this whole industry out of existence? That would never make it into either a centrist Democrat or a Republican's mouth. It wouldn't come out because that is the reality of our two-party duopoly is that they're really just there to control the opposition from either end. You know, the Republicans have brutal, hateful, xenophobic policies, but the Democrats, as the only other alternative, have the same neoliberal economic warfare against the poor. And it is minorities, women, who are overwhelmingly the ones hurt by those policies. So how can you say that the Democrats are not at the very least, ineffective or undercutting their own arguments by supporting these neoliberal economic agendas that have failed and that will continue to fail 
and have been completely in, incapable of dealing with the coronavirus outbreak. <sighs> Joe Biden is a rapist, as far as I'm concerned, because I do believe Miss Reed. And I believe that in a just world, Joe Biden would have been held accountable for this already. And I sincerely hope that somehow he is held accountable now. But it just seems like the systems of power are determined to coronate him because they know as long as he gets the nomination, then they will have won. There's nothing more to do at that point. Whether he or Trump wins, what matters is Wall Street will win. What matters is the stock market will win. And that is why we come to the next segment of what we need to consider doing to properly address the coronavirus outbreak and properly address the failures of our government and this system that has decided to encourage us to go back to work and die just so long as the American economic system and the billionaires that benefit from it can continue to make their wealth. So this is from an article by Counterpunch. Uh, this was written by Dr. Michael Papas on March uh, Papas? I'm, I'm not sure. March 20th, 2020. And it's capitalism is an incubator for pandemics. Socialism is the solution. Uh, so the spread of coronavirus is exposing all of the contradictions of capitalism. It shows why socialism is urgent, and it is only going to get worse. The spread of the virus is impossible to stop, and this is due to social reasons more than biological ones. While doctors recommend that people stay home when they are feeling sick in order to reduce the possibility of spreading the virus, working-class people just can't afford to stay home at the first sight of a cough. Contrary to Donald Trump's recent suggestions that many with COVID-19 should even go to work, end quote, the CDC recommends that those who are infected by the virus should be quarantined. This poses a problem under capitalism for members of the working class who cannot afford to simply take off work unannounced. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio recently suggested avoiding crowded subway cars or working from home if possible, but many rely on public transit. Suggestions from government leaders show their disconnect from the working class. 58% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings, and around 40% of Americans could not afford an unexpected bill of $400. So for many, staying home or not using public transit is simply not an option. Even more people avoid the doctor when we get sick. With or without insurance, a trip to the hospital means racking up massive medical bills. The Guardian reports that 25% of Americans say they or a family member have delayed medical treatment due to the cost of care. In May 2019, the American Cancer Society found that 56% of adults report having at least one medical financial hardship. Medical debt remains the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. One third of all donations on the fundraising site GoFundMe go to covering healthcare costs. That is the healthcare system of the world's wealthiest country, GoFundMe. Clearly, this is a very dangerous scenario. Already, people are being saddled with massive bills if they seek to if they seek tests for the coronavirus. The Miami Herald wrote a story about Osmo Martinez Askew, who went to the hospital for flu-like symptoms after a work trip to China. While luckily it was found that he had the flu, the hospital visit cost three thousand two hundred and seventy dollars according to a notice from his insurance company. Business Insider made a chart of the possible costs associated with going to the hospital for COVID-19. Of course, these costs will be no problem for some. The three richest Americans own more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans. The concentration of wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer capitalists is part of capitalism's DNA. But as Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson highlight, Extensively in their book, The Spirit Level, Why Greater Equality Makes Society Stronger, people in more equal societies are healthier, they live longer, have lower infant mortality, and have high self-ratings of health. Inequality leads to poorer overall health. So how does this relate to COVID-19? The main theory for these outcomes is that inequality of wealth and power in a society leads to a state of chronic stress. This wrecks havoc on bodily systems, such as the cardiovascular system and the immune system, leaving individuals more susceptible to health problems. 
This means as societies become more and more unequal, we will see individuals more and more susceptible to infection. Capitalism's inequality puts us all at greater risk as COVID-19 spreads. And that right there is one of the key problems I highlight with capitalism is that a part of its very function is, or even the premise of its success is based on the idea that inequality is good and that equality is actually wrong. Inequality drives people to compete and competition is innately good. That is the market, you know, every, you know, compete on everything that makes things the most efficient possible. Well, right here is an argument for why competition, endless competition and endless inequality is actually bad for the human body. On a biological level, it causes our immune system to get weaker because we have constant stress, that feeling of keeping up with the Joneses, just trying to outdo everyone in a constant state of war, which is what that is. When we talk about competition being good and efficient, it's not true. And I've touched on in other episodes why it's actually less efficient, but we're not going to touch on that particular part of capitalism at the moment. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that it isn't. And it even right here is bad on a biological level. It doesn't produce better outcomes for the human body. Now, back to the article, coronavirus COVID-19 uh, highlights the need for socialism to face epidemics like these. And by socialism, we don't mean Medicare for all or the New Deal liberalism. Medicare for all is not enough to face pandemics like the coronavirus. We mean a society in which human needs govern production, not the drive for profit. It's a society without capitalists where production and reproduction is democratically planned by the working class and the oppressed. In this kind of society, we would be able to respond to the COVID-19 infinitely better than in capitalism. In a socialist society, both prevention and responses to outbreaks of illnesses would change drastically. Supplies such as hand soap, hand sanitizers, and surface sanitizing wipes or sprays are in extremely high demand at this time. We are already seeing shortages of key supplies around the world. The need for profit maximization under capitalism has led companies to drastically raise their prices in this time of high demand. For example, the Washington Post has reported drastic increase in prices of products such as Purell hand sanitizer. Under capitalism, scarcity leads to greater profit. Capitalism has led to a globalized system of production-containing industries at disparate ends of the globe that truly depend on each other to function. This allows for a capitalist exploitation of a worker in a factory in China producing iPhones that goes unnoticed by an Apple customer here in the U.S. And it also allows corporations to drive down costs in one area of the world that may have weaker protections for workers. While this is beneficial for capitalists, outbreaks of illnesses such as COVID-19 highlight clear weaknesses in this system. A large portion of the basic materials used to make new medicines come from China. Since industry is so affected by viral spread, production of supplies has been drastically cut. This delays the ability for a rapid response in other countries such as the United States. A central aspect of socialism is a democratically run and planned economy, an economy in which all resources are allocated according to need instead of ability to pay. Need is decided democratically by both producers and consumers with the means of production under workers' control, and we would be able to quickly increase production of these products in an emergency. Furthermore, with the elimination of the barriers between intellectual and manual labor, increasing numbers of workers would be familiarized with the entire production process and ready to jump in where needed. In worker cooperatives within capitalism, uh, and such as the Madrigan Corporation in Spain, uh, workers already learn all aspects of production, and this allows workers to shift to areas where extra effort is needed because it's a cooperative effort, you see? When you work together, when you're part of a team, part of a system, and everybody shares in the profits, everybody has a vested interest in fighting for the organization. The incentive structure is better designed to address problems and to shift and change in emergencies. Unlike in our current system, which is straining to do the bare minimum of what is necessary to address the coronavirus because it requires change. And this system can't change because if it changes, then the profits of those that benefit at the top and who also happen to have all of the power will go down, even if it's just temporarily. And they cannot abide that. 
Now, of course, for socialism to work, it has to be a global effort because other countries, and we've been the biggest perpetrator of this, uh, will attempt to destroy socialism in individual nations. And uh, we've done that in South America. We've attempted to do that in Cuba. We've attempted to do that in Central America. We've attempted to do that in Russia. We've attempted to do that in China. I mean, destroying any kind of system that challenges capitalism has been a major aspect of the CIA. I'm back to the article. Uh, oh, oh, look at that. Uh, socialism cannot exist in only one country, so a global planned economy would be key in these moments. If one country is experiencing a shortage, others would have to make up for it. This is key for reigning in global epidemics like the coronavirus, and it will only be stopped if we stop it everywhere. In a global planned economy, this would be a much easier task. Staying home, for example. And if one does get sick, making a decision to protect oneself and others by taking time off should never lead them to have to worry about losing their job or paying their rent, putting food on the table, or being able to provide for their children. Under capitalism, services such as housing and healthcare are reduced to commodities. This often presents people with the ultimatum. Work while sick and potentially expose others, or stay home and risk losing your job. Or even if you don't lose your job. As right now, I've been told I can stay home by my current job. But that doesn't mean I'm going to get paid to stay at home. And that's the reality. It is, is, isn't even about risking losing your job. It's about losing your home or not being able to afford food. Under socialism, the increased mechanization of production and the elimination of unnecessary jobs, such as the advertising industry, uh, the healthcare industry, etc., would already drastically reduce the number of hours that we would need to work. We'd be spending vast hours of the day making art or hanging out with friends and family or just doing nothing and playing video games. Uh, during, the, during disease outbreaks, we would be able to stay home at the first sign of a cold in addition to getting tested right away. In a planned economy, we could allocate resources where they are most needed and take into account a decrease in the workforce due to illness. Now, currently, multiple for-profit companies are attempting to test sometimes new, sometimes previously rejected and now recycled therapies to see if they can treat or prevent COVID-19. While there are attempts to produce a COVID-19 vaccine, this vaccine would not be ready for human testing trials for at least a few months. And I believe I heard at one point it would be a year and a half, most likely, before it is actually ready. So that's just testing human trials. Uh, the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. Yet even last week, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar refused to guarantee a newly developed coronavirus vaccine would be affordable to all, stating, we can't control that price because we need the private sector to invest. The statement is ironic, to say the least, coming from the former top lobbyist to Eli Lilly, who served at a time when the company's drug prices went up significantly. Companies such as Gilead Sciences, Modera Therapeutics, and GlaxoSmithKline all have various therapies in development. Each company's interest in maximizing profits around their particular COVID-19 therapy has kept them from being able to pool their resources and data to develop therapies in the most expeditious manner, man manner possible. The state of COVID-19 research exposes the lies about capitalism stimulating innovation. Well, there you go. This article actually touched on what I meant to mention before is the idea that competition is innately good is actually erroneous. Cooperation is an innately good thing. We talk about how competition forces new ideas to come to the surface, but new ideas are not somehow held back by cooperation. They aren't you know, restrained in any way. When you're on a team of people, you don't think, oh, good. There's four other people here. Now I'm going to just shut up and let everyone else do the talking. Certainly some do. But generally speaking, at least for me, when we sit in a group of four people, all four people are talking. And I'm a talkative person, but I rarely see someone in a group of four sit in the corner and say nothing. Just absolutely nothing without the group at least trying to engage them. Which is the promotion of new ideas. Because people don't like to exclude others, generally speaking. Now, we all have people that we do exclude in our own lives and we're terrible human beings because there are some people we just find annoying. That's normal and natural. Don't worry about that. The point is, in a general principle, human beings are social animals and they will happily share with you their ideas, whether that you are competing or whether you are cooperating. And in fact, cooperation 
has a higher chance of producing a better outcome because you are more likely to share your ideas and not be scorned or slapped down as you would be in a, an environment like capitalism where let's say you and someone else are competing for a job uh, or a promotion and you have an idea that could save the company a lot of money, uh, but this person that you're competing against is the boss's son. Well, okay, the boss hears your idea, but he tells you to shut up because he wants to make sure his son gets the promotion. Competition is not innately good. It makes things inefficient. And of course, all of this was an aside to the article. I'm just happy it happened to touch on that thing uh, that I mentioned earlier. Getting back to the article. It also It is also important to note that much of the drug development deemed corporate innovation could not have been possible without taxpayer-funded government research. Bills such as the Bay-Dole Act allow for corporations to purchase patents on molecules or substances that have been developed at publicly funded institutions such as the National Institute of Health, then jack up the prices to maximize profit. A study conducted by the Center for Integration of Science and Industry and now analyzed the relationship between government-funded research and every new drug approved by the FDA between 2010 and 2016, researchers found, quote, each of the 210 medicines approved for market came out of research supported by the NIH. So there you have it, folks. Socialism is actually the reason we have any drugs to combat any illnesses, but capitalists can buy the patents and effectively make millions off of taxpayer-funded research. There you go. Fun, fun little realization to realize that even their lies about competition fall flat if you just look at the data. Expropriation of the capitalists would mean the public would no longer have to subsidize private corporate profits. The nationalization of the pharmaceutical industry would allow for both intellectual and financial resources to be pooled to tackle the globe's challenges instead of focusing on blockbuster drugs that benefit only a few. In the case of COVID-19, we would see a mass mobilization and coordination of the world's greatest minds to pool resources and more quickly develop effective therapies. In fact, there would likely be more doctors and scientists as people who would want to study these fields are no longer confronted with insurmountable debt. Under socialism, the entire healthcare industry would be run democratically by doctors, nurses, employees, and patients. This would be drastically different from the current system in which wealthy capitalists make the major decisions in hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, device manufacturing firms, and insurance companies. And of course, the key players in all of this are called the medical industrial complex. But anyway, in the case of COVID-19, healthcare would be a human right and not a means to make money. This would allow for every individual concerned to obtain testing and treatment without fear of economic ruin. If hospitalization or quarantine was needed, a patient and family would be able to focus on what was best for their health instead of worrying about it whether a hospital bill would destroy them economically. The purview of what is considered healthcare would also need to expand. An individual's overall living situation and social environment would be key to addressing their health. This would mean a health system under socialism would address issues such as pending climate collapse. While a connection between COVID-19 and climate change has yet to be established, rising global temperatures, largely driven by 100 largest corporations and military-industrial complex, will increase the emergence of new disease agents in the future. Shorter winters, changes in water cycle, and migration of wildlife closer to humans all increase the risk of new disease exposure. Capitalism created the conditions of this epidemic. Created the conditions of the epidemic. Capitalist solutions are insufficient and exacerbate the crisis, meaning more sickness and more death. Capitalism has been an incubator for the continual spread of the coronavirus. Healthcare under this system will always be woefully inadequate in addressing epidemics. The coronavirus highlights the fact that we must move to a more social analyst of health and well-being. We are all connected to each other, to nature, and to the environment around us. Socialism will restructure society based on those relationships. At the same time, socialism is not a utopia. There will likely be epidemics or pandemics in socialism as well. However, a socialist society, one in which all production is organized in a planned economy under worker control, would best be able to allocate resources and put the creative and scientific energy of people to the task. Michael Pappas is a Michael resident physician at Mount Sinai in New York. So there you have it, folks. I think that was a pretty succinct article. Uh, and it gets what I've been saying since I started this podcast across. Socialism is more efficient than capitalism. 
And my hope is that in hearing this and in seeing this crisis for what it is, people will come to realize that it isn't just a matter of wanting a utopia or wanting an ideal to be brought to fruition. It is an actual matter of life and death and of the public good that we institute these reforms. And in so doing, we would guarantee a better quality of life for everyone around us. And we would be able to effectively combat problems like the climate crisis or this new epidemic turned into a pandemic uh, instead of committing economic barbarism against people that just need to go to a doctor or take a few days off to get healthy. I will be back on Tuesday. Thank you all for listening and have a good night. Thank you.